Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to Semaphore Uncut, a podcast for developers about building great products. In this new episode, Darko the Podcast host welcomes Kevlin Henney, experienced consultant, trainer, and co-author of renowned programming books. Kevlin provides valuable insights into the significance of refactoring, managing technical debt, and achieving a balanced workload. I hope you enjoy this new episode. Now let's dive in. Hello, everyone. Today with us, we have Kevin Haney. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Darka. Can you please just go ahead and introduce yourself? As an independent, I do consultancy, workshops, talks, seminars, training, writing, reviewing, speak at conferences. I have an intermittent blog um, that I write for. Um, in terms of how I got into this, I guess originally I was you know, a much more regular developer, um, but funnily enough, company politics eventually drove me out of development, um, conventional development, into contract work. Uh, and then I decided that I, want, I actually enjoyed um, uh, dealing with people a lot and so went into a much more training and consultancy environment, um, uh, that whole enjoyment of speaking, kind of learning by understanding other people's problems, thinking on your feet when they ask a question. And from the technical side of things, um, I guess I have a, a lot of interests, broadly speaking, programming languages, development techniques, with a particular emphasis on things like unit testing and TDD, um, software architecture with a kind of particular emphasis on kind of much more empirical and continuous architecture. And I guess my background in that is patterns. I co-authored uh, some books on pattern-oriented software architecture, and I've also edited a couple of books, 97 Things Every Programmer Should Know, and uh, with Trisha G, 97 Things Every Java Programmer Should Know. We have recently launched a CICD learning tool which shortcuts into everything you need to know to level up your CICD process and increase your productivity. Also, to ensure that all our customers get the best CICD guidance, we have improved our sign-up process. From now on, everyone who's considering using Semaphore will get personalized CICD expert guidance from day one. Our engineers have more than 10 years of experience, so you'll surely be in good hands. Check it out on our website, semaphoreci.com. I saw one of the things that you are focusing on these days and, you know, spending some time on is like a broad topic of, you know, refactoring and improving things. How you see people understanding refactoring and what are some, you know, areas where it's misunderstood or the, yeah. My first job after university is actually so old that the term legacy code was not had only just been coined and uh, was not something that we used, but we had plenty of it. But I also saw in the existing code base that we had oh, lots of duplication, lots of cases where the logic had obviously evolved over time. Nobody had sat down and said, you know what, I'm going to write a messy function. That, you know, nobody, nobody sat down. That was not their first thought in the day. And I could see so many cases where you could just take a complex piece of logic and just simplify it. And I, I remember in that company, I used to call it factoring or just factorization. But I also came across iterative development and there's this idea of iterative refinement. And so that was a much bigger view. And it was really when extreme programming came along kind of mid to late 1990s that it's like, oh, there's actually a name for this thing. And then Martin Fowler published his book, Refactoring, that kind of grew out of the same community and the same experience. Here we see a way of addressing all of these issues that we encounter. The issues are uh, the issues that I would quickly list off as being, here's a bunch of code. It's not in a good shape. 
I would like the code to do the same thing, but I would also like to understand it. That's that's one thing. But the other thing that was emphasised, and one of the things I think has been lost, is the idea that refactoring is a first-class design practice. It's not just a tidy-up practice. In other words, yes, it does allow us to take code that is difficult to understand and has accumulated accidental complexity over time. But it's also about the fact that we learn. We, you know, the first attempt that you do something is probably the first time you do something. Why is it going to be the best? It probably isn't. You just, your first point of contact, perhaps you're under a deadline uh, pressure. Perhaps the technology is new. Perhaps the requirement is new. The team is new. All of these things are new. And then at some point, they're not new and your knowledge is better. You know more in the future. The problem, and I think the frustration, is that we know more in the future, but we can't apply it easily to the past. Or rather, we can. And that's called, that's part of the idea. Refactoring is a way of saying, my knowledge has moved. We can do this better and better in a number of different ways. And that can involve, obviously, it can involve tidying, but it's not just tidying. It's actually choosing the right paradigm, changing um, the fundamental basics. You might say, you know what, this is not actually an object model. This is actually a data flow model that I'm looking at. And so if I change the fundamental paradigm, then that would actually make all of our development easier. It would make our testing simpler uh, and so on. So it's the idea that your design is is soft and that refactoring allows you basically gives you permission to not be perfect and know the future you know it allows you to update continuous accumulation of knowledge can be incorporated into your code base so that keeps your design alive um, and that's that's a that's an important idea and i think that's been lost and it's been further lost in another sense that we have uh, these days we have automated refactoring tools now when the original refactoring book came out automated refactoring was not a mainstream thing at all it was a research topic you know you'd think that we've got all of these tools it should make it should make a big difference actually i don't think it does i don't think it makes the difference that we think it does i think most people are given a tool but they don't necessarily know what to do with it it's not intuitively obvious i think we're missing a huge huge set of benefits um, that refactoring gives us just by it's basically just a glorified rename feature for most people and that's great that's a great starting point but it is not even close to being what refactoring is really about in one of your recent talks i remember quite uh, vividly a point when you were talking about importance of stopping and, and reflecting and uh, that nature of our maybe industry of like always being you know everyone is busy but especially busy and especially in a hurry and chasing, you know, we are going to lose the edge towards the competition and so on. And um, can you talk a bit about that in the practice on, in the, in, of development, the importance of that and how you see that? Yeah, I think we can see it in the language of, uh, the, the language of urgency, the language of speed. You know, we can see it in that kind of, that kind of classic engin- engineering saying, which I think dates to the 1950s, uh, move fast and break things. Um, but people often associate with um, Facebook and actually that. <laughs> If that, isn't, if that isn't example enough to motivate you to not do move fast and break things, I don't know what is. But the we have this idea, we keep talking about, oh, we've got to deliver faster and, and so on. And that urgency and that emphasis on speed, and we see it in the way that people uh, can accidentally find themselves ending up with kind of metric fixation. They can get trapped into um, focusing on their sprint velocity, which in most cases is actually actually sprint speed. Velocity has direction, and I think that's the thing that we lose. The idea is that we are 
optimizing the wrong thing. We are getting people incredibly busy and we're getting really good at building the wrong thing in the wrong way rather than moving in the right direction. And I think that that emphasis is, I mean, it has consequences, very broad consequences for the pressure that people feel at work. We can end up with a kind of a very micromanaged environment where once upon a time deadlines were every few months, but now it feels like every day is a deadline. Um, That's not ultimately good for your mental health and it's also not good for the health of the code base and we keep applying this pressure now if that pressure actually gave us the things that we were after perhaps we would be able to justify it but it it obviously isn't we just end up with a lot of urgency and we run up this kind of unmanaged technical debt we've kind of got the uh, we've kind of got the meter running and the quality of the code is not necessarily improving i'm not going to say that it's it's all bad you know there's there's definitely um examples where we see companies that have got a really strong set of values and understand their own uh, pacing. And they kind of talk about this idea of sustainable pace and like, yeah, okay, the amount of code is not the thing that we are aiming for. What we are trying to do is aim for the amount of functionality. And we know that functionality is not independent from the way that we express it. In other words, the idea, the false dichotomy a lot of companies find themselves in, and a lot of teams say to me, when whether I'm running a, a training course or consultancy, they, they always say things like, oh, well, yeah, we can't do this because we're always being told to deliver features. And there's this curious idea that somehow you can deliver features using magic. You, apparently, you don't use code to deliver features because if you did use code, you would care about the code because obviously if the code is not in a good state or keeps getting worse, then clearly you're not going to be able to deliver features. But there's somehow we've ended up with this false separation that somehow functionality is delivered through magic and then there's this other thing that developers do that's code and they keep saying, well, we kind of need to update it and improve it. But clearly that's not important because magic delivers functionality. But for some reason, magic is delivering the functionality slower every single sprint and with more bugs. We don't know why this is. It must be magic. So there's this kind of idea we've ended up with this curious separation. Whereas actually, no, the the code base is part of the total cost of ownership. That is what you, those are your running costs. They're not negotiable. And if a developer says we have to focus on quality, then they are the expert in that. That's their job. Um, that's why they are employed. And the idea is that they should naturally give themselves permission to have this this time. And you're not going to see the opportunities for improvement if you always feel rushed. That only comes when you step away from the pressure and the urgency. And so therefore, development, from my point of view, is a, is a knowledge-based discipline. Um, and we need to learn how to learn. We need to learn about our knowledge. And there's the calm, reflective period. And then there's also kind of intense focus. Um, we should allow both of those. Whereas I think current business culture, we end up with the intense but without the focus. We have recently launched a CICD learning tool which shortcuts into everything you need to know to level up your CICD process and increase your productivity. Also, to ensure that all our customers get the best CICD guidance, we have improved our sign-up process. From now on, everyone who's considering using Semaphore will get personalized CICD expert guidance from day one. Our engineers have more than 10 years of experience, so you'll surely be in good hands. Check it out on our website, semaphoreci.com. From this perspective of a couple of decades long career, is there a piece of advice how that you would give to developers how they should frame their mind and their approach? 
most people have significantly less experience. Um, the, the people without experience have significantly less than the people who have a lot of experience. And so therefore, going back to this idea of, hey, it's knowledge-based, and this is what we do, it means that the knowledge, we it's collectively we have the knowledge, but it's very poorly distributed throughout our industry. In other words, in one sense, we say we know how to do this, but we is a very particular grouping um, scattered across the industry. And even one person is not going to know it. You know, the knowledge that you need is probably in somebody else's head. My advice to the people is is really to, if you can find the opportunity to look at what you're doing and reflect on it, any particular point, um, that may tell you things that you need to know, but even things that you don't want to know. And I think that's important. When we talk about companies scaling, one of the things they don't want to hear is the reason that they are getting bigger is because they, um, they are doing the wrong kind of work. Why have you got twice as many developers? Is it because you're doing twice as, uh, and let me use the vocabulary I would now use, is it because you are producing twice as much value or is it that the other developers are now dealing with the problems the first developers created? And there is a huge difference between these two. And the problem is that if we end up with the wrong kind of metric fixation, we end up valuing the wrong thing. And that's the question as an individual that you can ask yourself is, is the work that I am doing in response to other work that I didn't do? Is the reason that I am busy today because of something else I could have learned from and didn't? And that's not to blame yourself because honestly, in software, there's so much going on to know everything is not going to happen. But Every now and then, if you spot the opportunities, is there something I could do in future that would prevent this situation again, or at least reduce the probability? We don't live in a world of certainties. Reduce the probability of this. And the distinction I'm after, really, is this idea of that a term from John Seddon, who's a systems thinker, value demand versus failure demand. In other words, the demand of why am I working at this moment? What causes me to do whatever it is that I'm doing at this moment? And the observation there is that most work in uh, that I've seen um, informally and, and more quantitatively is not value work. Most people are working because something else is not working. And that obvious, the obvious thing is fixing a bug adds no value or, to a system. Um, I mean, we could say in one sense it does add value because we had negative value from the bug. So we've removed that loss of value, but we're not actually achieving something new. We're just achieving something we should have done. You know, we should have achieved, we we're achieving something we thought we already had. So that's a really obvious thing. Um, because there's a bug, we are now doing extra work. Are we doing value work? No. Somebody wants a new feature, but because I am working on this, there's that. But then it also gets to more subtle things. Is the reason that I am looking at this thousand line function and scratching my head because I don't understand it and nobody else understands it either? You know, everybody that arrives in this piece of code has to relearn and re-understand and re-evaluate. In other words, you're not actually, although you're there to do value work eventually, you might spend eight hours in a day scratching your head and then eventually go, oh yeah, I know what I need to do. And there's the proportion of your day actually spent doing the work of value, adding the functionality that people want is a minority. So we actually see this systemically. And I would estimate, um, and obviously these are not quotable formal numbers, but I would estimate that for most developers, no more than about uh, 10% of any week is spent actually adding meaningful value to a system. And it basically means that 10% of developers are doing meaningful work. The other 90% are dealing with the problems that everybody has created. And either through no, no fault of their own, sometimes through lack of knowledge, but also 
the way that they work, the, 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 the workflow they have, the company culture that they have. Um, and when we look at it like that, it, it's kind of, that kind of encourages to, wait a minute, I need to take a step back here. What's the small thing that I, as an individual, or we collectively as a team or an organization could do that would allow us to shift that balance so that we feel that the reason we've doubled the size of our team is not just because we're a bigger company, not just because we've got some success, but it actually is proportional to the amount of value-based work that we're doing. Yeah, we're not just picking, we're not just paying for the past mistakes. And on this topic, I really liked, you used the terminology of technical, unmanaged technical debt and managed technical debt. Can you please talk a bit more about that? Yeah, I think, again, it's it's one of those things, it's a little bit like the word refactoring about how that we perhaps, we've narrowed it down to a very particular sense and actually missed its broader implications. And for me, the same occurs with technical debt. I think technical debt is one of the better metaphors that we have in describing code and perhaps some of its issues and some of its trade-offs. But that is why it was originally introduced. Many people just use the term technical debt to mean it's bad. So, you know, Somebody may say, oh, we have a lot of technical debt. And from that, you're supposed to conclude they have a problem. Now, I'm not saying that they don't, but I do think it's important to nudge people just to say, well, hang on, if debt is the metaphor, are you saying all debt is bad? And that's the idea that Ward Cunningham, when he introduced the debt metaphor, was trying to communicate. He said, sometimes you make a trade-off to achieve something that you could not otherwise do based on time and your existing knowledge. Perhaps you don't know what it is that you need. So let's just put something in. And when we understand how it's used, then we can make a stronger decision. And the code at the moment, it's we're not putting in code that's intentionally bad, but we are putting in code that we know we probably will get a, get rid of in the future because we're just trying something out. And we're, you know, either it's a technical thing we're trying out new framework, new languages. We don't want to jump all in and spend a lot of effort to discover it was totally wasted. Or it's something new from a customer point of view. And we're just seeing customers' reactions. And we're going to just try that. And then when we've learned more, yeah, maybe that code is, you know, it lives in the past and we replace it with the thing that we really need. And now we have more knowledge. So we repay that debt. So he was saying the whole point was you're making trade-offs. It's intentional trade-offs. So debt on its own is not necessarily a bad thing. The bad thing is not necessarily the debt. It's what you're doing with the debt, how you went about it. And Martin Fowler introduced this idea of the technical debt quadrant where we differentiate between deliberate and accidental debt, debt that we knew that we were undertaking. I know there's a better way to do this, probably, but perhaps I don't know exactly, or perhaps we don't have the time. I'm making a deliberate decision, as opposed to accidental, unintentional, because we don't know everything. We're always operating with incomplete knowledge. You don't always know everything you need to know. So there will be costs there. and, And we've got to accept that. But then also, that's the origin, if you like. But what about your response? Is it is it um, prudent? Is it wise? Do you have a repayment scheme, so to speak? Or is it reckless? It's just like, yeah, I don't know when we're going to do this, but you know, we'll just leave it in the code base. And you don't have a kind of approach. So I kind of bundle that up to be managed and unmanaged. That's the thing that makes a difference. If you have technical debt, that's not necessarily a problem. If you're trying to tell me that there's a problem, oh, we've got debt and we don't manage it. Now I understand your problem. That's, that, that is a problem. If you say we have managed debt and we have a really simple philosophy of prioritizing and doing this, then you know what? You've got technical debt, but there's no problem here that I see. You know, um, It's taking up some of your work, but it's not out of control. It doesn't surprise you. It doesn't hold you back. So the distinction is not between technical debt and non-debt. It's between are we managing it or are we not? And 
I think the other thing there is also to get to another distinction that I've I've started to value and kind of introduce the term is debt is a consequence. It's a, it's an effect. But what's the cause? Many people are focusing on the outcome, but not why do we have this in the first place? And in many cases, going back to what we talked about before, it's to do with technical neglect. Neglect is a different thing. That's a cause. We're not paying attention to it. And there's a very simple reason. Either we have not learned to do that, or culturally, that's just not the vibe of our company. Uh, Or there's time pressures or whatever. In other words, that leads to neglect because there's so many things to focus on. You can't focus on everything. So neglect will happen. When we were working on a newer version of our product, it was like maybe 2017 or so, we were at that point maybe seven or of year, eight years of experience of building CI CD tool. And uh, we embarked on a journey of like, you could call it a rewrite to some extent, essentially a new version of the product. And we knew the subsystems very well, but we, we didn't have, of course, years to rebuild it. We wouldn't be able to afford to launch the, the product in time if we did everything perfectly. But we did make those deliberate moves to leave the debt day there. And now, any years later, with teams, you know, larger and with more resources, we are repaying. Yeah, and, I that, and that very much goes back to this kind of deliberate sense. It's very much what Ward Cunningham was talking about, that, that trade-off. We are making a decision here between our options and what is possible and what is capable. And we also understand we there is a, an implication in the future. And that's the whole point of the debt metaphor, that that a debt is in one sense borrowing against time. Yeah. For people that want to learn more about refactoring and also follow your work, can you give us some pointers? If you want to find out about me, my name is somewhat internet unique. So Kevin Henney, you can find me in a number of places, uh, Twitter, Mastodon, I'm on LinkedIn as well. So I will normally talk about these things there. You can find a number of talks that I've done uh, on YouTube. I try and collect these talks together on a playlist on my YouTube channel. Again, I'm fairly easy to find. One of the talks I've been doing the last year or so is um, refactoring is not just clickbait. And you can find, I think, one or two versions of that out there where I also give further pointers to uh, the history of refactoring and the work of Bill Opdyke in the late 80s and early 90s, but also these uh, uh, other consequences and implications. Um, And in terms of refactoring, I think in terms of learning more about it, I think just broadly, whenever you are reading up on refactoring, see if Uh, whether you're looking at a blog or a book, just see if they're going a little bit further than just the tool level or the tidy up level. Amazing. This is one of those episodes where I I feel that we just, you know, kind of wrote the introduction and (laughs) we can can start. And uh, I hope there will be another opportunity for us to speak and uh, explore this or other topics further. Thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure exploring this topic again. Thank you very much, Darker. What a great conversation. We hope you enjoyed it and learned something new. Make sure to subscribe to Semaphore Uncut on your podcast player of choice so that you don't miss our new episodes. And stay tuned.